Broadcasting live from the Great Northern Hotel in beautiful Twin Peaks, Washington. I'm Matt. I'm Caroline. Say the rest of your thing! It's your thing! <laughs> Isn't there more to your thing? No, you s- <laughs> There is after you do your thing! <laughs> we just covered this! You, wa- you listened to our whole Skype call! Broadcasting live from the Great Northern Hotel in beautiful Twin Peaks, Washington, I'm Matt. I'm Caroline, and this is an episode-by-episode breakdown and discussion of all three seasons of Twin Peaks. If you've ever wanted to know how to build your own set of noiseless drape runners, or how to get on the guest list at one Eye Jacks, this is a podcast for you. Today we're going to be discussing episode three, Zen, or the... Fuck, I fucked it up. I don't remember the episode title. We were doing so good. No, we were so good. (laughs) What is it? Zen or the skill to catch a killer? I don't know. That was your job. Sorry. It's okay. Take five or whatever. (coughs) Sorry. (laughs) Broadcasting live from the... Eh, sorry. I I didn't have the emotion with that one. Let me... Broadcasting live from the Great Northern Hotel in beautiful Twin Peaks, Washington, I'm Matt. I'm Caroline, and this is an episode-by-episode breakdown and discussion of all three seasons of Twin Peaks. If you've ever wanted to know how to build your own set of noiseless drape runners, or how to get on the guest list at one Eye Jacks, this is a podcast for you. Today, we're going to be talking about episode three, Zen or the Skill to Catch a Killer. Okay, so we are back after... Uh, sort of a a little bit of a break from recording these episodes i uh i got promoted from from bellhop at the great northern oh to gosh. concierge so i've been settling into that new uh new job routine so taking us a little while but we are back on track and recording episode three zen and the skill to catch a killer which what do you think of that title well first of all it's or so not not and what <laughs> shit so that's what I think of that title. <laughs> okay. It's weird that it's Tibetan Buddhists aren't Zen Buddhists. So I guess that's my that's my issue with it. Oh, <laughs> He's okay. not you're, using Zen. You're, you're getting pedantic about this. I am getting I just think it's weird. It's weird because that has almost nothing to do with the episode. Like the Coop stuff is kind of kind of secondary. Yeah. It was definitely it was definitely my least favorite part of the episode. We'll have, we'll get into that. Really? But, okay. Um yeah, I thought I thought this episode is the focus on everyone else is so much more interesting. Coop comes off as, as, I think, almost an afterthought. I'd much rather just be sort of spending time with these people. Well, that was the biggest thing like I noticed. processing. Yeah. Because um, that's sort of what this episode is a little bit, but then... Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It kind of takes a, a little bit of a right turn. That was the, turn. the big thing that I noticed about this episode was that we move between plot lines really quickly. And maybe it's because I know what happens because I've seen this episode enough times. I don't have that same, like when we cut away from one scene to the other, I know what the plot lines are. So I'm not like, I'm not as eager for that switch. Like I'm not as eager to get back to, you know, Leo and Shelly and Bobby after the, you know, the Horn Brothers scenes. Like, because I don't is need... Any, is anyone eager to get back to Leo, Bobby, and Shelly? But I mean, like, plot-wise, I don't need to know what yeah. happens. Like, I'm not in suspense about any of these plot lines, so those quick switches stood out to me a little bit more. Like, there's a lot of cuts in this where we, we cut mm-hmm. to a different scene. Yeah. 
and like kind of weird intercutting. But yeah, so I didn't, I didn't mean to just like bag on Coop, but I just I think we'll get into it more. But the way that the detectiving happens in this is so detectiving, detecting, um, <laughs> investigating. It's so yeah, it's it gets so yeah the investigation. It's so out there that like he's he's been actually doing like real real detective work for the past two episodes, and then it just like. It takes a right turn or left <laughs> a left turn when you think that like I feel like this would be a great opportunity to get into like talking to more people about this while it's fresh because we do get like interesting the layers are being peeled back with some of these characters in this episode but the yeah. investigation doesn't tie into that really at all. We don't really we don't really get any build up to this whole idea of Cooper being very into these like mystical tibetan whatever it is yeah mind body coordination as he puts it which i mean yeah, exactly. sorry coop is that <laughs> sure, also coop. not just like everything yeah, everything like, is everything is mind catch? body. isn't that like catch <laughs> everything is mind body oh. coordination but no i i see what you mean and like it's just all of a sudden like he's very like very into this like sort of mysticism stuff it's very wacky because a lot of the super weird surrealist stuff hasn't really happened yet yeah like, other than bob yeah and and like coop doesn't really know about that i don't think mm-hmm. so it's just weird that like he's sort of the source of this weird wackiness i think this is just sort of a, this shows up in the earlier episodes that the mythos just isn't as formed yet and i'll talk about that at the end because i have a whole little bit but it starts off though at the horns they're eating dinner and it's like this kind of claustrophobic single long take of them clinking around silverware and not talking. And Johnny Horn is there wearing his like big Native American headdress that he always wears. And I think what what really stands out to me about this scene is that this is this is one of those David Lynch things where he's not showing you an uncomfortable scene. He is making you uncomfortable watching this. Like mm-hmm. I felt like very fidgety and antsy as I was watching this because it was I was there. I was in that room, you know. Yeah, and Johnny's like letting out like like small kind of like weird sounds, and it's just it's very it's super awkward. And is this also is this okay, David Lynch? Is this is Johnny Horn's character a little problematic? Well, um, <laughs> just a little. But yeah, so Jerry Horn shows up. God, uh, I and love like, Jerry. Yeah, he immediately he immediately cuts the tension, and it's it's obviously it's intended that way. But he is. Ben's younger brother, I Must guess. Must be, yeah. Yeah, and he's like the wacky, zany one to Ben's sort of controlling, abusive one. He's back from Paris. He starts passing out baguettes. He's like, "This is I had this every day. Um, you got to try this." And Ben basically he has an orgasm. He's just very like, into that baguette, which I mean, just, I guess I can't blame him. But I also don't know how Jerry was able to like bring a bunch of baguettes back. The airport security wasn't his type back then. This is this is a pre nine eleven Twin Peaks world. Baguettes could still get through, but so they get yeah. It's, it starts getting like slapsticky. They're like they're talking with like just massive amounts of bread in their mouth and like saying gibberish. It's so it's so weird. Like the the tonal shifts in this show. Yeah, but what I I love about this and I think why I love Jerry as a character so much is because he this is kind of his whole role, right? Is he makes. 
Like, he makes Ben Horn palatable as a character because you get to see mm-hmm. the two of them being so ridiculous and slapsticky, and it, it makes it fun. Because otherwise, Ben Horn is just a massive sleazeball who is, like, a good character in, in that he's, a, like, he's, you know, kind of well-developed as a character, but... I mean, you would just hate to watch him on screen because he's just so skeezy. And so I think that that Jerry's role, not that Jerry is any less skeezy, but is is to kind of um, make Ben a little bit more palatable. Yeah, he's he's just fun to watch. Like they give him the wackiest stuff. And uh, so speaking of both of them being sleazeballs, so Ben Ben tells Jerry that like, well, Leland's daughter has been found dead, and the Norwegians are not signing the deal, we might be a little bit screwed. And Jerry remarks that he's depressed, and Ben says he will cheer him up because there's a fresh girl at One-Eyed Jack's. And it's very creepy. It's super gross. Yeah. Like, I'm not even sure what the... I, like, blocked out the words they used to describe it. It was, like, freshly scented. Yeah, from um, the perfume counter. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, which comes back later. So I won't get into this a ton um, right now because obviously spoilers, but it's really interesting watching this scene in particular post-watching season three Mm. Um, because I think that there are a lot of parallels that I think it just watching it now makes it really clear that the third season really takes this kind of stuff and broadens it out, puts it on a larger scale. I think that that One-Eyed Jack's being a casino and, and the dynamic between Ben and Jerry Horn is... I, like just David Lynch definitely came back to that right when yeah yeah I mean, and all the Vegas stuff and it's like what season three does is take these little moments like this and really place them on a larger and more mm-hmm. national scale, um, which I think yeah. is kind of what the whole whole purpose of it was. Well, anyway. I was I was gonna say the one I jack stuff has never entirely made sense to me, but yeah. So really quick, we cut to James and Donna and they're. Like it's after dinner. Uh, in the previous episode, it ended on James and Donna having dinner at the Haywards. Um, and James and Donna are just, like sitting together, and it's kind of awkward. But the Haywards go to bed, and then we cut back to the Horn brothers arriving by boat <laughs> to One Eye Jack. So they pull up to like a dock, and there's like a scantily clad woman out in front. And all I can think is like, how how is this operation still going? Later on, Truman says like, oh yeah, One Eye Jacks, it's a casino. So obviously it's not an underground casino and brothel, like it's a well it's a well known enough casino. How, did, how does no one notice the like that it's the also women clearly a brothel? Yeah, like greeting men as they pull up in boats. I mean, but none of that's illegal, right? It's only illegal if there's if they are buying sex. The women can be nude for all the Canadian government cares. Probably, I'm not really up on my Canadian prostitution laws, but. But like I, I think that yeah, I think it's probably all just masked as like, oh, it's just it's just a casino and they're just scantily clad. It's just hooters. I guess. I just I feel like a sting operation would have come through there at some point. Like I guess it kinda does in the later episodes. Yeah. Um, actually just, it exactly does. Yeah. Um, well, I think too, just like just because Sheriff Truman knows about it, he knows about it because they're right on the border, right? And people probably people from Twin Peaks like, other people, other than the horns, probably go up there. But, I mean, it's probably, it appears to be in a remote enough part of Canada that, you know, Canadian law enforcement probably just overlooks it. You know, they probably don't, like, go in and check it out all that often. It is hard to blend in as a Mountie. But there's some really great lines when they pull up. Jerry's like, should we go to the casino or the 
the brothel first, and, and Ben's like, I didn't come here to lose my shirt, I just came here to take it off. Um, which yeah. is just, it's so, it's, I don't know, it's Another excellent. Another one of those sort of idiomatic, sleazy lines yeah. it is. And then, and then, yeah, and he says it, he says it so, like, it's so scenery-chewing, but it, it works, because, like, that's kind of who he is as a person. And then when they get inside, Cherry goes up to the, the woman at the bar and he says, I want a double scotch on the rocks. My brother will also have a double scotch on the rocks. So And the woman's like, so that's two double scotches on the rocks. He just says, next stop, rocket science. And I just, I lost it. I thought that was so funny. I don't know. I love the lines they give to Jerry. He's such a funny character. Ben recites Shakespeare to Blackie, who's like the the head of the brothel, like the mistress. I don't know what you would call her, but... I think it's, I think um, it's a madam. Well, madam, there you go. And so, yeah, so I guess that wins him the new girl. No, they flip a coin. Oh, shit, did I totally miss a scene? Yeah, they... Damn, I was so busy writing notes, I didn't write the right notes. When Jerry said he was depressed and Ben said he could cheer him up, he said, you know, there was a new girl at at One-Eyed Jackson, he said to Jerry, you have a 50-50 shot of being the first in line, mean, meaning they were going to flip for it. On the other hand, Ben, if your brother's like, hey, I'm depressed, and you're like, hey, I want to take you out to this brothel, you get the... Like, wouldn't you just give him the... Like, isn't that a cool thing to do, would be to give him the new girl? Like, I don't know. I'm not sure why I'm, I'm debating the morality of their hooker, like, assignments. <laughs> uh, um, anyway. Yeah. Yeah, and so then... So yeah, Blackie just sort of, after Ben gets it, I guess Blackie kind of puts her arm around Jerry and says like, "We'll we'll go find you like a, we'll go find you a, a good hooker. It's okay." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we cut back to James and Donna, and there's a little detail I noticed that when we cut away from the previous scene of James and Donna, it, it lingers on a clock and it shows that it's like five minutes to midnight, and then when we cut back, it starts on a clock that shows it is midnight. So and again, I think it comes back to the fact that these are all taking place over the course of like roughly a day Mm -hmm. and this like this is like a very it's a very cool way and like a very direct way of saying like these are happening like these events are happening extremely concurrently those five minutes you just watch the horns in there are literally happening like almost in real time here so yeah they talk very close to each other's faces so close and i know they do this in other ones but it's so uncomfortable like it's got to be the point where they can, like, feel the, like, oh, who does that? Stop. <laughs> but, I mean, I think, again, that's that's kind of a, an interesting technique where it, it does it does put the viewer in a place where it is uncomfortable to watch this very intimate interaction between these two people, right? Yeah, it's super, it's super heightened yeah. soap opera, like, you don't get the, framing. Yeah, you don't get the sort of, like, the camera isn't here isn't offering any distance. Like, I do feel like I am sitting that close to their faces while they're talking and i don't want that i don't want to be that close to two other people's faces you know you know who else doesn't have distance james and donna because they've they've already had the conversation of uh they're in love they've always been in love they just didn't know it but it's not wrong this whole hooking up like a day after their best friend has died is okay because it was always gonna happen yeah, I, and it's very weird. <laughs> I, I hate this plot line. I'm just going to admit it. <laughs> no, really? I couldn't tell. I th- it was so much more fun when I first saw it, but it's just having to now record, record like every detail of it. I'm just like, God, stop. Let us breathe for a minute. But maybe that's the point. 
That's the master point. <laughs> I'm not really sure that you're supposed to, with this and with, with all of his other stuff, like, I don't really know if you're supposed to enjoy it. <laughs> really? Yeah, and, and I'm not sure you're supposed to, like, think that... I'm not sure you're supposed to believe it. Yeah. Like, I don't think I don't think he's... It's a soap opera sort of parody, but it's more... It's not just the style. I mean, I think he's also maybe saying, like, you know, this isn't actually good because... <laughs> These are, like, traumatized children who are just rushing into things and, like, trying to justify it. Um, yeah. We get, like, one of the sort of transition shots, and it's uh, the Great Northern Exterior. And it's at night, which we don't get as many of those. And it's just, it's so cool. Yeah. I love these shots. So good. Any of the big wide shots of, like, Washington are just super cool. Mm-hmm. They give you that weird sense of, like, scale that the show has, despite the fact that it's, like, sort of so it's like so small yeah i mean it it sets the show really nicely against this very expansive background um so coop he walks into his room and he toots a whistle and i think this is the whistle he was carving yeah i think it was the one he was he was whittling outside of yeah whittling outside of the roadhouse yeah and he's very proud of this and he's like god he's so adorable and he gets a call from I guess it's from Hawk that Ronette had had quit her job at Horn's department store, and that he's seen a one-armed man snooping around intensive care. Yeah, uh, we've we've we have seen this one-armed man snooping around intensive care, and I think that's really cool. Is that this doesn't come out of nowhere? If you've been watching the show, you've certainly seen this, but if you haven't been paying as close attention, um, well, and that was the one of the scenes towards the end of the last episode right was hawk following this guy for a couple seconds you're right i was thinking about the first episode where you just right uh. no but that's that's the thing is like we we do see him and i think in that first episode um does coop see him too in that first episode or it's been too long since we recorded you i think you see him very briefly coming in and out of the elevator yeah, yeah. So Coop sees yeah. him really, really briefly coming in and out of the elevator. And so I think that's the, the interesting thing about this, is that we as the viewers have seen the one-armed man. We know that Coop has seen him. We know that Hawk has seen him. And now, like, even though, like, they, until Hawk tells Cooper he saw him, like, they don't know that the other one has also seen this guy. Yeah, and, and just, they've built this up really well. And, and, and they've indicated now, like, oh, no, this wasn't just, like, the dancing kid in the hallway this is like yeah our log lady like it, this isn't just yeah. sort of an atmospheric piece yeah like something's something's going on and then i guess there's a knock there's a knock at the door to coop's hotel room he goes over and a note has been slipped under his door that says jack with one eye and this really bothered me audrey's the worst snitch ever because she should just write one-eyed jacks it's a it's like a public institution why would she why would she do this? She's she's pretty dramatic. I guess so. I think that might be why. It's just it's not it's not like it's not coded enough for it to be like, oh, what's this jack with one eye? Oh, it's one-eyed jacks. Oh. Okay, okay, that wasn't. It's only it's not really a riddle or anything. Right. No, but I think um, that's like again, I think she's just being she's just being kind of melodramatic yeah. and like, oh, I'm going to give him a hint. So, well, the other thing that I I do have to comment on about this is that he, like, kind of smells the letter. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Right? And so he totally figures out that... It's definitely implied implied that he figures out that 
who the letter is from because like he recognizes like the smell of her like perfume or whatever which mm-hmm. <laughs> coop you weirdo <laughs> I know, right? And I mean, but again, this just goes back to this whole like, like to the the sexual tension. It's not you don't have to read into the show to get it. Like it's definitely set up that way, and it it is a little weird. Well, it's weird because like Coop is almost like for like ninety percent of the show is super asexual. Like he's almost a cartoon character. But then yeah, there's just like freshly squeezed grapefruit. Oh god, yeah, it's definitely very weird. Anyway. Oh, so speaking really quick to jump in and do my bad my bad show of the uh, of the week review. Titans, DC's Titans. Uh-huh. Well, DC's Titans is hot garbage. <laughs> and no, just because it's slightly better than you expected does not make it good. It is atrocious. But they started hinting that Raven's character and Beast Boy's character kind of had like a little bit of a thing for each other just very uncomfortable because raven's character is played by a 14 year old actress and beast boys is played by a 23 year old man Oof. that's t- it's too much dc okay all right so, so uh snake mike and bobby are driving around in the woods at night prowling on the prowl they get out of the car and they're they're looking for something and I really like this because it's, it's like the classic. This is not a unique shot by any means to David Lynch, but it's just got like, it's got a lot of his flashlight on trees. Like, um, what's the opposite of steady cam? Shaky, Shaky cam. cam. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. On the, he's got you're a lot you're of these. supposed to be the one who knows this shit, so. God, I'm falling apart. He's got a lot of these flashlight on trees the stress on of that promotion shots yeah it's just it's really sorry guys it's just you don't understand you know we got it's such a good hotel here we have so many guests um well anyway <laughs> okay. remember how i said that the quality of these podcasts was gonna improve as we went <sighs> all right so they're prowling around in the woods and they go to dig up something at the base of a tree and it's like a, a cut open football with a bunch of cocaine in it. And then Leo like comically materializes next to him when he like switches on his flashlight. And I guess it's supposed to be imposing, but I thought it was really funny. Well, that's uh, again, this is we've had this discussion about Leo a couple of times before, but he really is a cartoon villain. Like his face oh. is so goofy. <laughs> I'm sorry, Eric Daré, but your face is so goofy. So yeah, Leo just kind of randomly materializes and of course he's asking about the money that they don't have because it was in Laura's safe deposit box. And and Bobby is just still managed to, to be kind of a fun character because I love I love the part where Bobby says to Leo, like, I appreciate your position. Like he's <laughs> like he's negotiating in a business room and not in the middle of the woods with a gun pulled on him. I wonder if that, I wonder if some of that like comes from his dad being like a a military guy that those are the kind of terms that they'd be like using. Yeah, Bobby, I appreciate your position on this, but I'm gonna have to firmly say. Yeah. So I'm not gonna. I think this this is a weird drug deal to me. Like if if they're leaving the football out in the woods to be dug up, that that sort of implies that they're trying to not be seen together. But then he's just there. With another guy in a ski mask. Yeah. Uh, off in the woods. Yeah. Do we ever, we never find out who that guy is. 
No, because he's not one of the Renault brothers, right? I think he's just some rando. He gets killed later, right? Isn't he just some rando that gets killed? I don't remember him getting killed, but I mean, yeah, I assume he's just some random guy. So there's this kind of confrontation over this money in, in Laura's safe deposit box, and Leo kind of seems to imply that, like, Bobby and Snake Mike should have known not to, not to like, trust Laura with the money. He, he makes a comment about, like, you know, how wild she was and, like... Also, uh, so here's a question. Are Bobby and Snake Mike reselling this cocaine, or are they just buying, like... <laughs> Tens of thousands of dollars in coke. No, I think they're I think they're reselling it is the implication. And I think okay. I think the implication is that Leo is smuggling it into Twin Peaks. Yeah, yeah. And then, with the help of the Renaults. With the help of the Renaults, and then they are buying it from him and kind of distributing it. Oh. We never really figure out who their market is. No, <laughs> like all those teens at Twin <laughs> Twin Peaks High. Well, again, like I think. I'm sorry to keep coming back to this, but this is another thing where sort of the actual size and the size of the on the sign of Twin Peaks doesn't really match up. Um, yeah. Because I think that like if Twin Peaks is actually a town of fifty thousand people, then it's totally possible that Bobby is selling cocaine to you know a handful of people and nobody knows about it. But given sort of what we've seen of like of Twin Peaks High School, that's a high school with if like where if there's a kid in your homeroom selling cocaine, like you know who it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know who's buying it from him. So I think that there's some dissonance there. But yeah, so they they kind of have this confrontation, and then and then Leo. Um, he like yell, he starts yelling at them to like run. No, well before that though he starts talking about um, about Shelley, right? And oh coming yeah. Coming home and and of course the the underlying tension of this scene, right, is is that that Bobby is who Shelley's been sleeping with and then yeah we get the and then yeah we you know, start shouts at him to run go out for and, a pass yeah and so they're like freaking out and running back to their car and then as the music is like building and stuff suddenly the the football lands on the front of the hood of the car yeah and they kind of like jump. i love that it's such a like a an awesome almost literal deflation of the tension yeah and like no and i love i love that that line too that Leo's just sort of mocking, like, Bobby's... Football player. Football player, like, popular high school kid yeah. existence. Do we ever see Bobby playing football? We see him and Mike at practice. Snake Mike. But it's it's not football oh. season, so... Oh, you're right. These are things I don't know. Is football season the spring? Oh, wait, the fall. Because of yep. no, I homecoming, we, we did this once. <laughs> I'm a disaster. I'm sorry, listeners. Um... Ed comes home and he's covered in oil from the gas station is what happens. Which, does he I not assume. have a sink? Yeah. Every auto shop I've ever been in has had a sink in it because, obviously, the people who work there get covered in grease. Yeah, or like just like a hose outside. <laughs> like literally anything. A bucket. But, yeah, Nadine is doing like, um, like a rowing machine, I guess. Yeah, it's a weird... I don't really know what her, like, exercise machine is meant to do. It's like a backwards rowing machine. Just get buff. Uh, and she is, because when uh, Ed steps on her drapes and gets oil all over them and her drape runners that she has, like, laid out, uh, she gets super mad and she, like, bends the bars of the machine back with, like, comical 
comical strength. Yeah, so, and I, I forgot that her, her superhuman strength came into the show this early. Ugh, I forgot it came to the show at all. I definitely <laughs> thought this was, like, a thing that just happened in season two. I thought it was just a bad season two subplot. Yeah, there's, I, like, there's so much stuff that, like, was sort of left on the, like, the cutting floor, but still made it in in, like, weird ways, but then, yeah. Was, was this ever going to be a thing that David Lynch developed? Was this just a time setting detail? And if it was going to be a thing that David Lynch developed, probably wasn't going to end up looking like it did in season two. And that's, that's, that's it. That's the end of our podcast. Because yeah, that that's it. Applicable we figured to it out. literally everything in the show. Um, yeah. Was it just David Lynch being a weird-ass motherfucker? So, I mean, probably. I guess this is the next morning, right? Is this the first? Yeah, this is... Finally, we get to the next day because we see Coop and the police department are out in the woods and they're measuring something. Cooper's yeah. direction to do. I love, um, I love Lucy in all of this. It's just how serious and like focused she is on holding this this tape measure like directly in front of her nose. Mm-hmm. Um, and then later when she's like reading off the whiteboard, Truman and Hawk are like. I have no idea what, what this crazy man is doing. We go back to Shelly. Uh, she's watching, or actually she shuts it off, but we see our first like real glimpse of Invitation to Love, which you may not have been aware of this, but we are now going to jump into Invitation to Watch, which is our show within a show about the show within a show, uh, Invitation to Love. Okay. So today we're going to be breaking down what we saw on that episode of Invitation to Love, which was just the opening title screen, so there's nothing to discuss. Moving on. Um. No, hang on. Wait. <laughs> if we're gonna do this, I have thoughts. So we're okay, still. Okay, I'm sorry. This is this. We're still in our our show within a show. What's interesting about this is I think it is kind of the it's it's a sort of meta moment for Twin Peaks where it because I mean we've we've talked like four or five times now in the three episodes of this that we've recorded about how Twin Peaks is like a parody of. A soap opera right yeah and so you have this soap opera within this parody of a soap opera and it kind of highlights like it takes that moment to like sort of remind you that that Twin Peaks is self-aware in this way and that it isn't just that it is yeah. commentary on something that does exist and so I think I, I don't know I think that's kind of that seems to be sort of its, its role yeah it's it's a running gag and it's like a it is a straight ahead soap opera but it's but I had read that actually it was meant to be maybe a bigger detail and that like that it was going to be like a show that like everyone in the town obsessively watched but didn't exist like didn't broadcast anywhere else but i guess david david lynch i think thought it was like corny and overwrought i think it does work better i i agree with david lynch's directorial choices yeah yeah me me too i think it does work better as, as this sort of subtle thing that that isn't really made a big deal out of so bobby is visiting shelly he sees that she has been beaten by leo and shelly's like hey bobby maybe maybe stop stop coming because he will literally kill us um he is a he is a crazy psychopath murderer but as i put in my notes bobby got a grandstand so bobby's all like i'll protect you no matter what if he ever does that to you again i'll get him yeah it's- which i think is a I don't know just indicative of like shelly's lack of agency in this whole thing right that she's she's trying to, to tell bobby like yeah yeah and it's also like it reflects on bobby too and just like he's not gonna actually he's probably not gonna do anything because like leo is his source of cocaine and he owes him money and that like i mean he really is grandstanding and that like he's 
He does. He he himself doesn't really have the agency to do anything about it. We briefly see Ed go to visit Norma at the double bar, and they play like very like country western music under it, mm-hmm. which pretty much never crops up again. But it's just a funny accent to Ed's character. No, I do. I do feel like Ed definitely exists somewhere in Laramie, Wyoming. <laughs> yeah, For exactly. Sure. <laughs> but Coop's got a, a blackboard out in the forest. And he's, he's, like, making a presentation. <laughs> he's got, like, four chairs lined up for them to watch. And it's just hilarious. Um, yeah, I love this scene. I think it's so funny. Yeah, they all, like, lean forward when he's, like, talking about his stuff. And he just sort of – he starts with a, a history of Tibet, uh, sort of a political history of the Dalai Lama and stuff, because a dream gave him, as he says, uh, much sympathy for the plight of the Tibetan people, but also gave him – magic detecting abilities yeah now yeah i eat eat my words from earlier about him not being like sherlock from sherlock and that he has magic detective powers because now he does i I do like that they they make that transition from like fairly normal detective who's just really good at his job to like he actually does have mystical tibet powers yeah i'll be honest i do not like this whole bit it's 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 too wacky to start off with i feel like like no matter how well Coop has asserted his like intelligence and and detective abilities thus far, if he started okay, so I guess we'll explain what he does. They basically they're going through all the J names because in the diary I mentioned a J. So they set up a bottle uh, a certain distance. That was what they were measuring, and Coop has the name all the J names called out to him one at a time, and he throws a rock at the bottle. And depending on how the rock interacts with said bottle, they make a note of it again even if coop had been a super competent well put together detective up until now if i was sheriff truman and the fbi agents in charge of this case started doing this i would be so like upset and confused and i would definitely call a district office somewhere yeah and i think so i i think i read something about about this scene and about the idea behind it was like like, that it was kind of integral to the scene that that, that wasn't Sheriff Truman's response. And I, I could see a way in which that's sort of indicative of, like, what we get in later episodes where there is this awareness in Twin Peaks of this sort of otherworldly component that's involved. And and Coop is, he does work with that special section of the FBI that we find out in season three, you know. Like yeah, yeah. The All Project of- Blue Book, or the Blue Rose stuff yeah so Um, all of that kind of retroactively makes a lot of sense but yeah i agree that in this in this moment it's like how is this man a federal agent (laughs) yeah i just like it's the kind of thing where i wish i wish it was it was sort of presented as he he's aware of these sort of supernatural detecting things but he's not going to bring them in just yet because this might just be a normal serial murder and that as it becomes more apparent that stuff is super weird it becomes more apparent that coop kind of knows how to deal with that a little bit yeah. But yeah, I think I don't know. This scene is just super goofy for me, and I still I still kind of like it, but but I see what you mean. Fair enough. So anyway, but uh, they throw rocks, and one rock knocks over the bottle at Lawrence Jacoby's name, uh, but it doesn't break. And Coop says to to Lucy to you know make a note of that. For Johnny Horn and Shelley Johnson, the rocks like go totally off course. Uh, one hits a trash can, then the other bounces off a tree and into Andy's head. And Sheriff Truman's just a dick to him. It's like, Andy got hit in the head with a rock. And Sheriff Truman's like, oh, well, there's, well, there's no sense. There's no feeling. He's like, 
What is wrong with you? That's workplace harassment. That is your employee. Yeah, but I mean... You asshole. Eh, it was 1990. I, I don't know. It's not okay. He's just so pure, and he's like... He just laughs along with it, and I'm just sort of crying on the inside. Like, That's what really should happen in The Return, is like we get like super badass Andy, and like in the intervening time, he's become like a crazy action hero cop. That would have been so bad. <laughs> Jesus. So the bottle does break. He shatters the bottle spot on for Leo Johnson. Then he inquires about the one-eyed Jacks thing, because he's put that on the list as well, because Jack is a J, and it turns out it's a place. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Truman tells and then him. we get we get Lucy um, again being really like Lucy is presented as kind of spacey, but I actually I appreciate her. She's methodical. She's very methodical and she's very detail oriented, and so like she's she's not looking at the big picture. She's making sure that she is doing exactly what Cooper wants her to in relation to like erasing or not this name. Mm-hmm. You, know? you get that with the yeah the first introduction of the character. Do you want me to transfer you to the is that the black phone or the brown phone? Yeah, like then you see her later. Right, she's like reading a whole book about it. Just says Tibet on the front, but like, which is <laughs> a little ridiculous. But she she takes all of this very seriously, while still being kind of this like fun, charming character. And so I don't know. I really like that mm. about her. I identify a lot with her methodicalness. So exactly how I am at my job at the Great Northern Hotel. Come on down. We have uh, great rooms on discount for uh, all next week. Uh, you want to get your family out here, do some skiing, uh, see some uh, some universe-rending demons. Uh, prices slashed on everything. I'm letting you have this for one episode. It's for one episode? Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, Audrey heads into the double R. Donna and her family are having breakfast there, um, dinner there. Breakfast. Post, uh, post-church breakfast. brunch. All right. Oh, you're right. Donna gets up to talk to Audrey, who is just sitting at the counter and ordered a cup of coffee. And they get a scene where Audrey admits that she, like, super appreciated that Laura took care of Johnny. Yeah. Even if she didn't really like Laura that much. It was a, that was a really genuine scene. And it wasn't played weird either. Like, it was played straight. Like, it wasn't... It wasn't ironic. Yeah, or soapy. It was like... Yeah, it was a very genuine moment with Audrey. This, I actually, I made note of this scene. What interested me about this was this dynamic between Donna and Laura and Audrey. There's obviously this level of familiarity with between Donna and Audrey that we see in like the first scene where they're they like pass each other in the hallway and then this scene and then we get this additional layer when Donna says to Audrey like I thought you didn't like Laura which you know I don't really know what to do with that but I think that that adds a level to their interactions here that's that's interesting to me I I get the sense at least right that Laura and Donna their sort of social identity at school right I mean Laura's the homecoming queen they're both dating these guys on the football team like they're very like preppy and popular yeah it is weird because you kind of like Donna is sort of kind of like the quiet nerdy character but she's not no Um. she's only that way in, in comparison to Laura and so I think it's a good reminder I think of the reason that Laura's death is so shocking is because she was this, like, the popular, preppy, perfect homecoming queen and not the kind of person that this thing happens to. Not to be morbid, but, like, nothing about this show would have the same amount of punch if Audrey had gotten murdered because... Yeah. Right? Like, you can see Audrey getting involved in this kind of thing. Yeah, and I, I think you, I think there's sort of a certain level of, like, showing Donna and Audrey as foils to each other. But that they're not super different people, especially as the show progresses. They kind of, they both move kind of opposite. Yeah, but also that Audrey 
maybe sort of resents Laura because because Audrey has that reputation, but the fact is that she's not like a bad kid really. She kind of disobeys her dad and she makes hell at the hotel, but like the, she she gets the sort of like like bad girl reputation. Yeah, bad girl reputation when you know Laura is actually like um we get classic David Lynch coffee fetishism. <laughs> uh just like Audrey just circling her finger around that coffee and talking about how Coop likes it black. I saw something on on Twitter. It was like a shot of like Shelly with coffee and pie. And it was it was like, do you ever get the sense that David Lynch would fuck everything in this scene? <laughs> <laughs> and then Audrey oh, so, stands yeah. up. And... and she does her dance uh, to the slow Twin Peaks jazz music. And this is like, is this the first Audrey? No, it's the second Audrey second, dance. Second, because we had in, in Ben Horn's office. She has her twirling and yeah, doing her, her shoulder thing. Her classic, classic line. God, I love this music. Yeah, it's very good. And I need you to explain why you have strong lesbian vibes in the notes. I what did you, sorry, I was I've been trying to figure out like what I'm even saying about this. I don't know. I've got it. Like I thought I thought Like between just just yeah, in general just like, or like with No, between Donna and Audrey. Interesting. I'm not sure it's explicitly lesbian. I think it's just the idea of, like, general sensuality. Mm-hmm. But I just think the way that, like, Donna is looking at Audrey as she's doing this, there's an inherent sensuality to her character and the dance that she does. And I think, I don't know, you get that off of Donna, who's clearly reacting to that, whether or not, you know, they have any kind of lesbian tension. But I will note the scene fades uh, from this to the next shot way too quick. There's not enough black screen and it makes where the commercial breaks were put very obvious and I wish someone would go in and add back in like a second more black screen time between the fades. So Netflix Netflix execs and whoever has the right to doctor this film, get on that please because you're breaking my immersion ever so slightly. So finally, 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 the best character, I think we say that for every character, but the best, best character, Albert, arrives. He is the... Are you going to argue with me about this? No. No. In retrospect, he's a great character. I hated him so much when I first watched this show. Oh, me too, me too. That's that's why I like him now. He's like he's a Bobby to me now. I appreciate this character so much, yeah. just given... Even in this first scene, I still kind of hate him. Oh, it's just... God, he's such a dick. <laughs> ah, I love it. So, he's, what is he a forensic examiner, pathologist? What's his official title? Um, I think forensic, like a forensic medical examiner. We'll go with that. Yeah. But, so Albert yeah, shows Albert, up. Yeah, he just has some great lines. Like he looks down at the original autopsy notes, and he's, oh, as I suspected, amateur hour or something like that. And it's just, but he just doesn't. He doesn't care at all that like he's basically insulting these people to their face. But Sheriff Truman cares, because he, he gets pissed at him, and he says something about... He says something to the effect of, like, I hear that you're, you're really good at what you do, which is good. Because, and then this was, this was an interesting line. Normally, if somebody walked into my station and started talking to me like that, they'd be looking, he'd be looking for his teeth two blocks up on Queer Street. Ah, uh, Yes. I don't know if it's intended to be offensive or if it's pre that usage of queer. Like the idiom comes from before that and means something else. 
It says it suggests someone being in financial difficulty. Uh, says has nothing to do with sexual orientation, and then the Wikipedia page says a colloquial term. Yeah, wrong, improper, contrary to one's wish. Yeah, no, it's okay. It's not. Yeah, because I heard that, and my I went out like my first reaction was like, uh, oh, wait a minute. Yeah. Like, is that is that okay? Um, yeah. So yeah, so Truman so Truman kind of puts Albert in line with a questionably homophobic uh, idiom, but we think maybe not. It's it's and, not. It appears to not uh, be homophobic. Then we see the scene that I was first describing when Ed comes home to Nadine, where he hears her yell, um, and he's like, oh no, not again. But she runs out of her room, and she's, like, super excited, and she's hugging him, and it turns out that when he accidentally got oil on her cotton balls for the noiseless drape runners, it made them run even more noiselessly. I mean, they are very quiet. I have to give her that. Yeah, there's no sound coming out of those things. But yeah, this is a weird, like, just that she can she can display affection to him only when it's from this weird materialistic thing that she's obsessed with. And it really has nothing to do with, like, him. I mean, which I think I think is kind of a point for her character. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. Like, none of it really has anything to do with, like, none of her affection for Ed really has anything to do with Ed. We see, like, Pete talking with Catherine. Catherine is being abusive to him, too. And he sneaks Josie, like, a key, yeah, the key to, to the... the safe. Yeah, and we also find out at this point that they, they sleep in separate bedrooms. And Catherine just treats him like a, a kid. They do, they do like, a redux of the fish in the percolator line, which I forgot. Josie peeks at the ledgers. And she sees that there's two of them. Yeah, so some books are being cooked, which is not a revelation to us, but I guess it is to her. We get probably the best scene in the show, or the show, in the episode next... Oh, God. Oh, this is so uncomfortable as well. Yeah, it's a great scene. Uh, Leland is in his living room. He puts on kind of a swinging song. It's, uh, yeah, it's Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania 65,000. Oh, man, you're... Did you, did you already know that, or did you look that up for the episode? Should I know this? Is, am I, like, culturally illiterate? No, it's Glenn Miller. Oh, okay. Which is why I know it. I was going to okay. be named Glenn if I was a boy. <laughs> that's what that my is mom hilarious. tells me at least i don't know if she would have followed through with it but she's she's pretty insistent that had i been a boy she was gonna name me glenn miller i don't even know what to think about that <laughs> so yeah so he, he puts on whatever the song you said was pennsylvania six five thousand okay he picks up a picture of laura and he starts sort of spinning around and like dancing with her to the music and eventually he's just screaming like spinning faster and faster sarah palmer walks in and she's like, Leland, what are you doing? She tries to stop him. He won't stop, so they're, like, struggling. It's not, like, violent, but she's just... They're both just kind of having a breakdown. She's trying to get him to stop. He won't stop dancing. And they they fall over and they smash picture, which is not the not the least heavy-handed metaphor I've ever seen. Yeah. But... And then and then the, some of the glass must cut Leland, because then he's, like, bleeding on the picture. We get it. <laughs> yeah, so Sarah kind of does her... She has a little breakdown after that. Yeah, she knocks the needle yeah. off the record player. and so What is happening in this house? Which I think, oh, it really comes into season three really yeah. well. well so that like it ties that's... it to the house specifically. Yeah, the house. This was one of the questions I have, like, re-watching this season, is how much of this was, how much of where we went in season three was actually being set up here and that, that David Lynch actually did kind of have it in mind to go to some of these weird places? How much of it was 
season in season three him coming back to what was already there and building off of it like uh, I want to know I'm so curious about like what was what he would have done if he'd had the space for it yeah because it's like how yeah what what was what was the thought process and is it like what's the chicken of the egg yeah kind of here or yeah like did know. was and there's some of this stuff in the there even in the dream sequence too like some little details that oh we'll get to that we'll get to that though i know no it's just that <laughs> that those seem like moments where he very clearly was coming back to those for season three mm-hmm. but something oh, like yeah. this i don't know if he i don't know if season three was him coming back to it and saying like okay what is this scene that i already did set up or how much of it was him having already like intentionally foreshadowing something mm-hmm. like this well okay i guess speaking of the dream sequence we're here yeah and, and we get what's cool is that this is our first red room scene mm-hmm. and it's intense and i forgot how intense this red room scene is yeah the sound design oh it's so good really really kicks in well here with the shaking the shaking of, and the like clothes uh, rustling yeah, and it's old Coop, which also again ties into season three. It's it's so it's so weird that the old Coop was a necessity of season three, because Kyle McLaughlin got older, but old Coop did in fact show up in the red room in the first appearance of it. Yeah, and he looks way worse than old Kyle McLaughlin. He <laughs> looks like shit. Old Kyle McLaughlin is such a handsome fucking silver fox. This guy's like a uh, so mud well. monster almost. <laughs> Because they didn't, like, just... They didn't give him wrinkles. They just made his whole face kind of bad. Yeah, they just made his face, like, a weird stucco wall. Um, like, it's pretty nasty. It's, but yeah, it's so really that's, interesting, that's though, what... in terms of, like, how they thought he was going to age, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> they got it very wrong. Um, or, or how bad their makeup budget was. Also a, um, a possibility. But yeah, that is one of those cool connections in season three, like... Right, I'll I'll see you in another twenty five years and. Yeah, it's like I assume he did not obviously did not anticipate that, but like it worked out the really fact well. That the first scene, yeah, it worked out so perfectly, and the first scene with it is old Coop. We'll get into it later, but that that to me is like whoa that I, I had totally forgotten. Maybe David Lynch is just God. Yeah, maybe he is just God. Maybe, but yeah. So we see the red room briefly and the the man from another place, the sort of the dwarf dancing from behind. And then we get Mike, not Snake Mike. And Mike Mike. Mike Mike. And he sort of recites the Fire Walk With Me poem. Which also it... ties into the future past thing. Yeah, exactly. Oh man, it all comes full circle. It's so, it comes together so well. I really expected rewatching season one for there to be more where I was like, mm, well, you can tell they didn't think that one out but now i'm just like wow they've really thought this one out <laughs> well i i am about to i am about to bag on him a little bit for that because after okay. mike does the fire walk with me poem this is the first time we get the full one the entire recitation of it he sort of talks a little bit about losing his arm and working with bob and it's all setting up some mythosy stuff yeah that line where he says um i think you say convenience store that gets me that's such a good line <laughs> I don't why know. is that I'm, I'm curious I don't know. I, his delivery of it is just really good. It, It's really, like, it feels really detached in the right kind of way. It's very vague. Like, we lived among them. I think you say convenience store. Like, he doesn't really connect mm-hmm. those two pieces. And I think it just, that's the kind of, like, disjointed mythos of Twin Peaks that I really love. Yeah, and he's tied to Bob, which means that this detachedness is sort of, obviously in the case that he's not really of this world, and so therefore Bob isn't either, and suddenly you've got a yeah, much clearer sort of sense of an antagonist that 
doesn't yeah. necessarily play by the rules of our world. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think it's interesting, too. Like, I don't really want it explained because of the, you know, it would ruin the sort of experience of the show. But, you know, the, the sort of rules about how Mike and Bob are able to interact with the, the human world are mm-hmm. interesting to me because Mike is just there, right? Yeah. Like, he's not, he's just chilling. Mm-hmm. But, but Bob is very much not, like, Bob's not interfacing in the same way that Mike is. Yeah. And that, so, so here's my, my little complaint, is we do see Bob, and then Bob talks it's Bob for, like, is very an extended weird. amount of time, and yeah. I'm not a fan. And there's just like there's just weird, I'm going to catch you in my death bag. And it's like, I know that Twin Peaks throws out random shit all the time, but Bob is such an uh, important character that a couple of weird throwaway lines... I don't know. To me, really to me, yeah, it doesn't really work. And I think I was looking at just the set he's in during that bit and some shots from the international pilot, and I think some of this might be lifted from that. Hmm. Yeah, that makes a certain amount of sense. I also I think that Bob talking kind of undercuts his creepiness. Oh, yeah. Whereas Mike in this scene, the way he talks makes him much more unnerving but bob talking like what's what's so creepy about bob is that he doesn't talk and he is very like animalistic Mm -hmm. yeah and it's very unsettling and then he talks and it's like oh you're just a dude yeah you're just you're just a dude all right plus it's not like it's not an actual actor it's just yeah it's just frank frank silva like like camera guy four camera guy four yeah Yeah, but i mean which is which is fine and like no i mean i think they made a good choice and i i appreciate that they saw him and were like yep (laughs) yeah shouldn't have shouldn't have him talk there and yeah i just i think even even some of the mike bob dynamic like i obviously don't want the twin peaks mythos explained too much and there aren't super rules for it but i don't know it does this the whole idea, the whole idea of like, weird. yeah, the 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 way that I guess it just especially in Mike's relationship to Bob and the relationship to the sort of larger Black Lodge idea, I think it's it's it seems a little bit kind of disjointed. But we go back into the red room scene, we get the very famous lines, uh, "Let's rock," and that gum you like is coming back in style. Sort of old Coop is sitting there watching the man from another place, and also what appears to be. Laura Palmer in in the curtained red room and you've got like the Hellenistic statue behind them and it's just all very weird and he's old and they're yeah. just sort of saying weird stuff to him and there doesn't seem to be un- unlike the Mike and Bob stuff yeah, there's no is indication as to what this has to do with anything but I like I like that it's the, it's the better it's the better half and this is and this is the stuff that gets like referenced right yeah like like you said, these are all the really classic lines, but then also um, the sort of the, the aesthetics of this particular scene are the ones that get get referenced, get parodied, get... It, it is the Red Room, but it is very specifically this first scene in the yeah. Red Room. Yeah. And I think that that really, because it's the first scene, because it gets referenced so much, because we, you know, I mean, we've talked before about the Scooby-Doo parody and the, <laughs> I mean, there's a there's a Sesame Street parody of it, right? Like, it's everywhere. And I think it, it really indicates, like, this is the level of impact that this scene in particular had. Yeah. In as much as Twin Peaks kind of changed the game for, for television, like, this was the scene that made it clear that it was going to do that because this scene really changes the game for Twin Peaks as a series. And so I think, yeah, the, the impact of this particular scene just, I don't think it can be overstated. And and they have the weird voice for the man from another place, which is, it's recorded and then reversed 
and then he and then re- and, yeah, and then he recorded he recorded reading the reversed version and then reversed back into straightforward. So it's got this it's got this distortion that's very hard to put your finger on because it seems like it's reversed, but the words are coming out in the right order. Mm-hmm. And that's just such a cool like weird effect that he puts in there. Um, yeah, it must have again, been absolute the, the shit for the sound. actors. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, just the attention to the sound in this scene, like you said, yeah. is really great. Like, so I was thinking about it as I was watching the episode that like I'm not getting a ton of his sort of very famous sound design, but that's because I think it's hard in television because budgets just aren't as high. But here especially, he just sort of puts it all on the table. And the man from another place starts to dance, his weird sort of, I don't know, his dance. And Laura stands up kisses coop and then whispers something in his ear and the music is just so fantastic the jazz that baldamati has going like under this it's so strange like it's because you would there's so much creepy music and like creepy atmospheric music in twin peaks that you would expect that this would be a place that has that but no it's like it's jazz (laughs) but it doesn't feel wacky it's not like yeah it's not like oh they're in wacky land it's like they're in deeply weird land Um, yeah exactly that's that's the thing about this scene i think that where it's not right there's there's so much about twin peaks that is sort of wacky and a parody and it's not that and it's also not like the sort of more horror scary creepy elements of it this is deeply weird and this is deeply surreal which is when this show is at its best and coop awakens from the dream uh very suddenly and he calls truman and he says meet me tomorrow morning and he says, I know who killed Laura Palmer. And then there's a beat. And he says, no, it can wait till morning. Like, really, really emphasizing this. And then, the, like, this great little detail. It's the music from the Red Room is still going. And the scene ends, and the episode ends, with him snapping along in rhythm to the background music. So this was the thing I was looking for before we started recording. Was I just read something about this scene that I think a couple of things... His hair, like, being completely, like, stuck up on the end like that, they didn't do that intentionally to make it seem like he'd just woken up. He he just, like, laid down, you know, because he was laying down, and it just, like, pushed his hair up like that. (laughs) And they saw it and didn't tell him because they were like, oh, that's perfect. And then the other thing was I think that, if I'm I'm recalling what I read correctly, um, I think that they said that the snapping was kind of a decision that was made on the spot. But so that wasn't wasn't scripted. It's a a super cool... That like the the dream the dream has extended into real life sort of and right because you never remember music from a dream. There's more. This this was this was not just a dream, and this is a a subtle ominous way of suggesting that it blurs the line between the um, diegetic and extra diegetic music in a in a weird way where we're not sure like if I forget which way it goes, but like it's not clear whether this is music that Coop can actually hear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's implied, and, like, we hear it, but it's not clear that this is just soundtrack. It's not, I think it's diegetic in the way that, like, Audrey's music is when she plays the song, right? That's obviously in scene, but... Oh, I don't think, I don't think Hoopin, like, is listening to this song. I think maybe it's in his head, but... Right, right, but that's what I'm saying. I think it it blurs that line. Yeah, no, yeah, interesting. Because because the scene presents it as he would have, like... He's on beats, so he would have to be hearing it but also it's not in the scene so where is it right it's not in the the realm of the audience where it's soundtrack but it's also not diegetic yeah um in in that it's in the realm of the character it's somewhere in between which i think is a lot of what this show is sort of working with and then it ends with the credits they actually play over 
uh, a scene of uh, the man from another place. So it's not just the standard credits. And yeah, yeah. so that, that closes out episode three on a, on a pretty big cliffhanger. But I mean, I guess it is one of those things where you're like, well, obviously not. Um, right, right. But I mean, it's impossible to see this as a real cliffhanger, but it's sort of endearing in that way. But I imagine that it, it would have been a pretty, pretty substantial cliffhanger, I even feel like, still. I feel like if anyone thinks the show is getting wrapped up, like no, but I mean, not in that way, but just like a what, a sort of like what, what like what could he mean? What does yeah. he mean? What the hell did we just watch? Kind of thing. I mean, I imagine if you were watching Twin Peaks when it first came out and it ended on this scene, and you had no familiarity with Twin Peaks, right? Because even when I when I first watched Twin Peaks. I got the disclaimer of like this. You're about to see some weird shit. I, I just I have to imagine that this would have been a very disconcerting like way to watch the. No, you're right. And even just as like, what what could he have possibly gotten out of that dream? Because I got nothing out of that. That was a lot of gum and <laughs> that was da- a bunch dancing. of absolute gibberish. So yeah, wrap up. Yeah, I mean this is one of those scenes that I I I wish I knew what it would have been like to watch this when it first aired. What's interesting about watching it now is that even the first time I watched Twin Peaks I was watching Twin Peaks having first experienced it as kind of a cultural touchstone because I saw a parody Uh of it before I ever watched the show and so it's just a totally different perspective and I have to imagine that this this ending scene just had I uh, I wish I, I wish I could go back and and watch it like having having never heard of Twin Peaks Mm -hmm. or, or seen any references to it or yeah or the cultural phenomenon around it yeah I will say this episode kind of represents the best and worst of Twin Peaks to me in that I, I really like things like the the seedy character drama they have going on. Um, I love the horn stuff, the one-eyed Jack stuff, and of course all the like all the red room trippy stuff that's like that is iconic, but uh this episode does just suffer from I think there's a an overload of sort of zany wackiness. I don't know, it feels a little out of place for me. I'm giving this one a six out of ten. <laughs> no, that's really that's low. That's really low. That's, I guess I was doing it on a relative scale. I was gonna say um, like, like didn't episode. You, episode. Did you give Solo like a five out of ten? <laughs> well, that was also on a relative scale. Um, that's what I'm saying though. And they're and they're separate rel- I know. relative scale. I know. That's why you gotta put it on a. <laughs> okay, I'm giving this one a nine point eight out of ten. Didn't quite make it to the 9.9. <laughs> Too wacky. I have, I think I have a little bit higher tolerance for the sort of, of wackiness of, of certain aspects of Twin Peaks. I find it kind of charming. Yeah, but Coop like honks Truman's nose. I know, it's so cute. It's so weird. <laughs> it's adorable. Uh, They're also in love, but it's fine. I think, I guess, I guess the part of it is that knowing how cool and quasi-mythical and dark this gets the wackiness as pure wackiness rather than wackiness as a cover for a darker more twisted underbelly for me it's i don't know it just feels like ah, i want to get good stuff um, i think it would be i think it would be too much uh, i think it needs i know i, it needs I know some lightness i know you don't but to appeal to an audience outside of just david lynch fans this needs to have some some levity are you telling me that i'm not the only person that watches this show, and there's a general populace that, you know, wants to just sit back and enjoy TV once in a while. Yeah, I mean, there are there are people who have, have this is their only interaction with David Lynch, and, and will probably continue to be. You're, t- so. you're telling me they don't piece through 
all of the numerical references in <laughs> every yeah, single so. episode and tie them together and and edit together frames of shots to show overlapping timelines no okay. i mean there is there is also a significant portion of the population that does that you know but but i <laughs> it maybe had to had to appeal to a slightly wider audience and i think that that's where some of the because some of the the sort of zaniness feels very reminiscent of like of shows like like green acres sort of like 60s sitcoms that had these weird elements in them i mean that's i think that that some of those sort of wacky moments that are just played like that um are, are reminiscent of like of earlier forms of tv in a way that some of the soapier stuff is too yeah um, so i think it's i think part of it is sort of playing with those conventions and like i said I, partially i just find it charming that's fair so. enough i you also know that i do not like sitcoms it makes sense that you know yes all right i think that we will see you next week in the meantime go follow us on twitter yeah. We still don't have one as of the recording of this, but I will um, I will make one. I just want to give a plug. The Great Northern Hotel does uh, offer rooms you can rent out for weddings uh, or uh, bar and bat mitzvahs or really any kind of event. Uh, so <laughs> if you are looking for a beautiful space at a fair price, we are accepting space reservations as of now. So please come visit us. We'd be happy to have you at the beautiful Great Northern Hotel in Twin Peaks, Washington. Until next week, I'm Matt. Yeah, I'm Caroline. And next week you won't be doing that bit. <laughs> and next Just... week I won't be doing that bit. <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs>